G'day, Troy Dean from WP Elevation and welcome to episode 73 of the WP Elevation podcast. 73 is a mighty fine number as the year I was born. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and not watching it, again, I suggest you check out the podcast on the blog because we have a new studio set up. I'm sitting in front of some funky banners with some cool lights and a beautiful camera. Uh, so check out wpelevation.com slash blog for uh, all the podcast episodes. Uh, this week, our feature guest is Hugh McLeod from Gaping Void. Hugh is a cartoonist, not a political satirist, he reminds me. He's a cartoonist who draws cartoons to help affect change in business culture. His clients include Audi, Microsoft, HubSpot, Rackspace. Uh, it's a philosophical conversation. Not a lot of talk about WordPress, but we do talk a little bit about WordPress as a platform because it's where Hugh started blogging some 10 years ago and uh, says that his blog was paramount in helping him attract the kind of clients that he wanted to attract. There is lots of talk about finding your voice as an artist and just pushing on through when you're not getting work and, and staying true to your path and then reaching that tipping point and realizing that you're finally attracting the clients that you want to attract. It's a fascinating conversation. Hugh is also the author of uh, Ignore Everybody and 37 Other Keys to Creativity. I think that's what it's called. I can't remember. He's going to kill me for that. I should look it up really and give you the correct title because we are giving away a copy of that book. Uh, it's called Ignore Everybody and 39 Other Keys to Creativity. We're giving away a copy of that book this episode. Stick around for details on how you can enter that competition. Stay with us. Let's elevate. This is the WP Elevation Podcast, helping WordPress consultants elevate. This episode of the WP Elevation Podcast is brought to you by Video User Manuals, which is just by far and away simply the quickest way to teach your clients how to use WordPress. If you are building websites for clients using WordPress, just give them the Video User Manuals plugin and it will teach them how to use WordPress, how to use WP SEO by Yoast, how to use WooCommerce, and how to set up and configure their Google Analytics account and how to read their Google Analytics reports courtesy of our friend Justin Catroni at Google. He has uh, gifted us those videos to include in the plugin, which is mighty nice of him. So there are now, I think, over 83 videos in the back end of your client's WordPress dashboard. Uh, you can configure the plugin to look exactly how you want with your logo on it, set it up the way you like, save that as your master profile, and then deploy that master profile to your client's websites just by installing the plugin, clicking master profile, and then clicking save. And you can now also use our embed codes to embed our videos on your own membership site. And hey, charge access for your customers to come and learn how to use WordPress and how to use WooCommerce and Google Analytics and SEO by Yoast. Pretty neat, huh? Get on over to wpelevation.com vum to have a look at a cool little video that my wife and I made where we role play and she pretends to be a client and I pretend to be a WordPress consultant handing over a website. It's kind of cute. Uh, you, can check out w you can check out video user manuals for $1 for your first month so that you can set it up on some client sites and take it for a spin. All right, enough said about that. Uh, Hugh McLeod is from Gaping Void. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, he is a cartoonist who makes art for businesses to try and affect the cultural um, try and affect cultural change at businesses. He's got some uh, high uh, tier one clients, including Microsoft, Audi, HubSpot, Rackspace. Uh, it's a very interesting philosophical conversation about being a hungry artist, being a freelancer, staying true to your path. And we're giving away a copy of his book. So stick around for details on how you can enter that draw a little bit later on. But right now, let's go and meet Hugh McLeod. G'day, Troy Dean from WP Elevation. And I'm very pleased to have with me here, Hugh McLeod from Gaping Void. Hey, Hugh, how are you? Oh, hola. How are you? <laughs> Thanks very much for spending some time with us on the podcast. For those that don't know, wh whereabouts are you based exactly? You're in Florida, isn't it? Miami, Miami, yeah. Cool, Miami, Florida. nice. Awesome. Um, for those that don't know, Hugh McLeod is um, an illustrator and a cartoonist um, and is, well, we're going to talk more about what Hugh and Gaping Void does. Um, I'm going to give away a copy of Hugh's book, Ignore Everybody and 39 Other Keys to Creativity, uh, which you can learn more about in the show notes. But I'm going to give away a copy of that this week. So stick around for details on how you can enter that competition. Hey, Hugh, before we start talking about entrepreneurship and business and art and illustration, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, wow. Uh, what age we're talking about? <laughs> Six. <laughs> oh, I think... I, uh, what? 
Oh, I, I think like something like really cool, like a fireman or an astronaut. But I, I think I always thought being a cartoonist was going to be pretty cool. Or, or I thought like writing children's books would be awesome. Ah. Uh, were you drawing I, a lot when you were that age? Were you, were you oh, illustrating yeah. a lot? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I really started when I was about nine. Like, I got really into it. Uh, well, I felt like, you know, I may, I may be good at this. Uh, but I always, I always. I mean, re I, I basically taught myself how to read reading Charlie Brown books, you know, Peanuts. Uh -huh. Yeah, Snoopy, yeah. And uh, and Dr. Seuss, another favorite of mine, early favorite of mine. And then actually Doonesbury, which was for, you know, a nine-year-old, was actually, back then, was actually fairly adult, I thought. Uh, and quite, and back then, Doonesbury was, I don't know if you have Doonesbury in Australia, but Doonesbury was very, but, you know, back in the early days, Doonesbury was like very hip and very urbane. Mm -hmm. And very new and very fresh, and isn't anymore, but it was back then. And there was always certain magic to cartoons, uh, some more than others. Mm. But the really good ones were like they had this kind of like they kind of honed into some kind of incandescent truth that to me was self evident. And, and I always uh, tried to capture that or try to aim for that, anyways, and even from a young age. And then what, what came first for you, the love of cartoons or drawing them? Hmm. Well, like, oh, that's a hard one. Uh, I, think, I think I really like the – I think I like cartoons. Uh, see, back then when I loved cartoons, when I thought of cartoons, I mean I think I like real cartoons, you know, Charles Schultz, Dr. Seuss. Whereas me back then, there weren't cartoons, there were just children's drawings. I was drawing the same children's drawings as uh, everybody else. Uh, and when I was a kid, I just wanted to draw cartoons like a normal, like a cartoon, like as best I could. Mm. It wasn't until I was much older, uh, like maybe in my 20s, that I really wanted my own style. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it wasn't until my thirties to actually had I actually got one, so I think so. Uh, well, maybe maybe in my, my late twenties I started getting one, and then uh, it wasn't until my thirties till it really it really honed. So I want to talk more yeah. a little bit about that journey in, in in a moment about how you went from kind of wanting your own style to kind of finding your own style. But before we get there, do you remember the do you remember the sort of discovering the internet and realizing that? This is something. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Actually, actually, you know, the first time I heard about the internet, it's about 1990, I guess, 91 around then. And my friend, friend, I was working at an advertising agency in Chicago, and a friend told me about it. I said, "Well, what is it? A superhighway." So it's kind of always on. Everything's all the data is connected. Everybody knows everything at all times. And I went, "Boy, that sounds perfectly dreadful." <laughs> Because at the time I was in advertising, so I was like already saturated with media. I was like, well, at least with, with normal media, you can you can close a magazine, you can turn off a TV, you can turn off the radio, but if you're always on. I couldn't think of anything worse. And uh, and then and I didn't really pay too much attention to it. And then and then when I then a couple of years later, in like 1995 or six something like that, I was living in London. And London in case you don't know, had the first ever internet cafe <laughs> called Siberia. It's called <laughs> S. And I remember it was like, uh, we're talking like US dollars. I mean, it was like $10, $12 an hour just to, just to surf the internet. Mm. And not just that, you had to wait in line for an hour just to get a, just to get a seat. Wow. And then you get there and you had Yahoo and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> Yahoo and academic papers, that was it. But right then, I could see there was something amazing about it. I didn't know how to apply it to my own work. How, well, how, you know, it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, you can sell a t shirt of a with a cartoon on it to somebody in Indonesia if you want to, potentially. But, so, <laughs> you know, I mean, how about, I'd just rather sell. Wouldn't it be just easier just to like set up a market stall somewhere in like Kentish Town or whatever, Camden Town? And, I mean, I, I, I saw, I didn't, I didn't quite see how it was transformative yet, I suppose. Uh, it wasn't really until I saw blogging 
mm. come along where, hey, it's cheap, easy, global, and I can build it myself, you see? Because when I first discovered the internet, I, was, I knew nothing about technology or coding or anything, so I'd have to hire somebody, and I had no money back then. So, uh, But then when you could actually build it yourself and create your own, and you know, WordPress is like that, um, Blogger, Movable Type, remember that? Um, and then that, that was kind of a revelation for me because, you know, I grew up in an era where you had to be discovered to be a cartoonist. You either had to get published, discovered by a newspaper, or a, a syndication of newspapers. You had to be discovered by a magazine or a TV show or a Hollywood producer or a book publisher. And my stuff has always been edgy and I never thought I'd be discovered by anybody. In fact, I'd be probably shown the door right away by these people. <laughs> Uh, but with the internet, I said, well, you know what? I don't need to be discovered. I don't need to be famous. What I need are 10,000 people who want to buy a t-shirt a year or 10,000 people who want to give me a couple bucks a year, $10 a year, let's say, buy a book, buy a t-shirt, buy a ceramic mug, right? All those people there, that's $100,000 a year. I can live on that. That is freedom. Mm. And that was very compelling for me. This um this so reminds ten thousand was like the big number for me. Right. This is this is about fifteen years ago. This reminds me a lot of the article by Kevin Kelly uh, at uh, um, the Technium. One thousand true fans. I'm gonna put sure. a I'm gonna put a link to that yeah. in the show notes. So I want to talk a little bit about because um, you've you've you you got into blogging. You've written a book on blogging. Freedom is blogging in your underwear. Blogging obviously played a big part in your mm-hmm. in your journey. But a couple of things here. So at what point were you, were you still trying to work out your, were you still trying to find your voice as an artist, as, an, as a cartoonist when you started blogging? Or do you, no. feel, do you feel like you'd landed and you kind of knew you'd found your own voice and you were comfortable enough in your own skin as an illustrator and a cartoonist before you started blogging? Well, yeah, yeah, I thought, I thought my work was fine. I mean, I was very, I mean, I was comfortable with it. I said, okay, this is me, this is what I want to do, yada, yada. Um, now, how do I get it out there? And that, that's a different, right? That's a different, that's a different equation already. But the, you know, it's uh, what I discovered when I was first drawing cartoons. I had my first, my first cartoons published when I was in college. I was living in Austin, Texas, which I don't know. It's, it's kind of like a party town. Mm-hmm. It's big. It's way bigger now than it was 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Growing a lot, but I, I I noticed that like if you're a cartoonist or an artist, it seemed other than other than changing your work, you know, either you know whatever you're painting that day, that changes from day to day. But the rest of your life is kind of like Groundhog Day. <laughs> I mean, you wake up, you know, yeah. You check, you know, you wake up, you go in your studio, you do you do your stuff, you work till four, you go to lunch. You know, whatever you go for, you go for a beer or whatever. You, you meet your artist friend. You you bitch about the business. You bitch about having no money. <laughs> you know, you go to the pub. You know, you try to hook up with some girl or whatever, and then you drink some. You, you get drunk and then you you stagger home and then you do the same thing again. And nothing ever changes in your life except for oh well, I made this drawing yesterday as opposed to this drawing yesterday. But the actual the, everything else was just very groundhoggy, you know, and. Uh, that's why I didn't like about being an artist. So uh, I thought I thought first that the internet was a great way to meet people who aren't artists, <laughs> mm. and meet people from you know I I, got, I started meeting tech, techies a lot because back in the early days of blogging, a lot of a lot of the good bloggers were techies because they were the first demographic to mm. take up to blogging really, and uh, it was great. Um, and then. Uh, But you know, but when you have different exposure to different groups of people, that kind of changes. That kind of changes the work you do. So you know, your your work becomes more techie centric or less. You know, it becomes about the world you're living in and the ideas you're you're, you're reading. You know, but I I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't actually that interested in you know art for a very long time. I thought what well, what was interesting to me was you know mostly business actually, not more than technology. I think. I mean, you talk to all these people every day, or every day you talk to different. And they all, they all have this, 
and they all have the same gun to their head. How the hell do I make a living? Mm. You know, and some of us are better than others, but we all have this, it's the same gun, mm. <laughs> you know, and a big part of our life is, you know, making enough wedge to take home to our wives or our husbands or whatever, our families at night. And that's a big, you know, for the adult, for the person living in an adult world, making a living is a, it's a big part of our lives. So yeah. As, as, as a result, it's a very, very rich tapestry. It's a very deep vein. And, and so that's what I got into. It's really interesting that you say that. Do, do you think that that whole, you know, we've, we've all got the same gun to our head. Do you, do you, I've been kind of rolling around this thing in my head recently about, you know, what, what percentage of our actions are driven by fear of not wanting to be where we've been in the past. Oh, you know, uh, 98%. Like starving, 98%. Like, yeah, starving <laughs> artists. And, and what percentage is driven by an aspiration to, to actually want to be something better? Like what, what, what percentage is driven by an aspiration of wanting to be a better version of ourselves? And what percentage is driven by that fear of just not wanting to go back to where we've been? Not wanting well, to I think, I think the aspiration can be like very big, but I think, I think aspiration is very intense and very fragile. Hmm. So you can, be, you, can be, you can have a lot of aspiration, for five minutes <laughs> and then you go back to, to fear and, you, and you, you can be afraid all day long yeah <laughs> well, you know no I, th I think i think i think i think high ideals are very fragile and very very transient i mean that's why that's why we can only spend an hour or two if we go if, we're, if we go to let's say let's say religious ceremonies that's why we can only do it one or two hours a week because yeah we can only handle being transcendent for about an hour or two a week or else we go nuts yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know um, I mean, I'm sure there's holy men in Tibet who can do it way longer than. Yeah, I was just going to say, except uh, the Buddhists. Um, so when so when you started blogging, was it were your intentions to just express yourself, or were your intentions commercial? Did you start blogging as a way of reaching out and building your network and actually having commercial outcome in mind, or was it just a way of? Was it just, you know, cathartic? It's a way of showing my work. It's right. a way of showing my work. This is, you know, the thing is, I, I've been drawing for like 20 years and not really had too much luck with publishers. My own fault. I could have had it if I wanted it. I just, you know, I, I think a, a lot of the trouble with being an artist is that there are too many shitty business models out there. Mm. And I really refuse to have shitty business models out of principle. <laughs> mm. You know, it's... Uh, and so I, I felt like my work wasn't, for somebody who had worked so hard at it for so long, my work really wasn't very well known. And, uh, and so I wanted my work to be seen. And I wasn't really interested in the money so much. I, I knew there wasn't going to be any anyways. So, but I wanted my work to be seen. Now, is that, is that vanity? Maybe. Uh, did I ever think I'd be able to turn into a career? No. It kind of happened that way. Uh, but I wanted my work to be seen. I wanted people to know my work because I thought it was worth knowing. Do, do you question whether it was vanity because, because of the kind of the tall poppy syndrome that putting yourself out there in the public sphere as an artist, you know, people might think that you're that you've got an inflated sense and i speak i speak for on my own behalf as well in our audience that if you do that people think you might have an inflated sense of your own kind of importance that you should just be a good behaving conforming robot and go to work in the cubicle nine to five it's a bit of that yeah a bit of uh what the what the danish call yentris log the tall poppy syndrome yeah <coughs> um a bit of that but i mean you know it's the old the old paradox of being an artist it's like well you made it. Shouldn't that be enough? Yeah. No. <laughs> I wanted the National Gallery. God damn it! Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. is that healthy? I don't know. It's uh, it's but it's nice seeing your work is validating to, you know, I, I, I'm not like a big, you know, author guy. I've written, published three books, three proper books by p proper publishers, and wrote a couple of ebooks as well. You know. And I'm not like really into my author identity at all. I don't really care about it. Doesn't it's not like a big part of my identity. But you know, when I get when I get a nice letter saying you know I read your book and it made a difference, that, that's really. Um, mm. And also, I mean, it's not just me. I like writing fan mail. I like writing fan mail more than I like getting fan mail. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'd love to write a letter to whoever. I you know he's a friend of mine now, but. When I first discovered him, I, you know, I wrote a letter to Seth Godin saying, dude, 
you know, your writing's awesome, you know, mm. <laughs> which it is. Yeah, uh, it is. <laughs> and uh, I mean, he's he's not just the, what he says, but how he says that he has such a great lean economy of words. So it's just, I think, staggering, you know, verging on beautiful. Mm. You know? So the thing of beauty is economy of words. You know, so I like writing fan mail just as much as I like getting fan mail. And, you know, people replying to my fan mail makes my day way more than getting fan mail. So yeah. I, I, I think, I think uh, you know, Austin Cleon says, you know, all fiction is fan fiction. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're, when you write a book, you're really, it's because you've read a lot of other books that you think are awesome. You want to, you say, I'll, I'll, you know, I want to hit that too, you know. You know why should Flo Bear or Tolstoy get all the fun? I want to. I want to like. I want to. You know. I want to soar with the eagles too. You know. Exactly. Wanna, you know. So you know. So I mean, there's. I I, I always draw cartoons because it amuses me to draw cartoons. Mm. It's a lot of fun to draw a really good cartoon. It's a lot more fun to draw a really good cartoon than to draw a crappy cartoon. And, there, and, you know, I think a big part of our lives is keeping ourselves amused. And, you know, cartoons are great. You know, a pen costs a dollar. A piece of paper costs five cents. You can keep yourself amused for hours for a dollar five. <laughs> compared to, you know, compared to, you know, uh, an evening in a casino. <laughs> or whatever advice you want to care to mention. That's excellent. I love that. You can keep yourself amused for hours for a dollar five. Um, <laughs> are you familiar with Michael Lunig, the Australian uh, cartoonist? No. I'm, uh, I mean, there, there's vast hordes of cartoonists I should know about that don't. I mean, there are a lot of good ones. Sure. So what's your question about him? Well, uh, not none really, but I will we'll send you a link because he's, uh, he's probably our most prolific and, and most profound uh, cartoonist in terms of he has a daily cartoon in the in a main um, broad broadsheet uh, newspaper here. He's a political satirist, really. Um, okay, okay I'll, well, I'll cut you off the past there. I'm not really into political newspaper cartoonists. I mean, they're historically important, but uh, I don't really follow them. I mean, there's one one in England called Steve Bell who I think is quite good, but I mean, you know, I I think you get a lot more. It's not really the meaning I go after. I mean, I'm much more of a uh, kind of eternal philosopher kind of cartoonist, like again Charlie Brown's a really good example. Sure, I, yeah. maybe I haven't done Michael Lunig justice. I'll tell you what. Um, post show, I'll send you a link and you can check out some of his stuff. Okay, sorry, sorry, Michael. No, I'm sure fine. you're very good. Oh, look, I'm sure <laughs> he won't be offended. I'm sure he won't even be. He won't even be listening. Um, when you started blogging. Um, this is a WordPress podcast, so we probably should talk about why you chose WordPress as a platform to put your blog on. Was it just that it was well, a that, well, it was that, easy? that was that was easy? That's an easy answer. Back then, we're talking about. Well, I started I started blogging before WordPress. Bear mm. in mind, back then, the major blogging platforms were Blogger and Movable Type, and then Movable Type was you know. Blogger was kind of crap. I don't know why they sold it to, to Google and then it just went. <laughs> and it's about 12, 13 years ago. And then movable type was quite good. A lot like how WordPress is today. Uh, and a friend of mine was an investor in uBlog, which was a uh, a French blogging company, which he actually sold. Then he went to work for, he's, they sold it to movable type. Uh, and then there's TypePad as well. Seth Godin's on that. Uh, well, I went, I went with uh, movable type because a, a blogger called Neil Dash was using it. And I said to myself, well, good enough for Neil, good enough for me. Yeah? And then uh, a couple years later, I was at the, the uh, convention in Paris, Le, Le, Le Web or Le Blog. It's called Le Blog. Now it's called Le Web. I met this young 23-year-old called Martin Mullenweg, Matt Mullenweg, uh -huh. who is this very you know, clean shaven, you know, young, very young. My God, he was young. Barely old enough to shave, like kind of well-mannered young man from Houston, Texas, who was just polite and charming. And 
and we shared a, we, we we shared a cab ride from one 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 event at the to another, and we just talked about it. And I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And then uh, eventually, eventually, the ecosystem built around weblogs. Start building around weblogs, and eventually, uh, you know, Mina and Ben sold six apart to what are called Say Media, and then they they pivoted, whatever the hell that means. And then you know, so the the the, the center of gravity of the blog world shifted over to. Shift over to weblogs. Also, what also happened around the same time is we had the kind of uh, wall garden site start coming up. You know, the uh, Twitters, the Facebooks, um, where if you if you had if you just wanted to, like document the minutiae of your life, you had things like Tumblr and Facebook just go. Here's a selfie of me at a bar. Yay! Hmm. Here's what I had for breakfast. If you had something kind of thoughtful, important to say that is worth having your own space on the web to construct your own. You know your own reality, and that's what. That, and that, and you know, not everybody has something to say so important that they're willing to do to go to the work to have to maintain a web a weblog blog. Um, I mean, Facebook's a lot easier <laughs> for certain, for if you mm. just want to talk about what you had for breakfast. Mm. Uh, if you want to kind of like create a platform for you want to create an actual platform then. I was like, weblogs think is much more versatile. Mm. Um, and also, you know, I mean, a lot of these questions, what's better, Twitter or weblogs think, or weblogs, or what's better, Facebook or, I don't know, whatever you, whatever makes you feel, you know, whatever, you know, whatever you fall into, you know, it's like, what, what's the best exercise? The one you do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm fairly, I mean, I think I, I, what what Matt did and his team did was very smart. Is he kept he kept it open. He kept it open standard, and he said, "We'll create this this open source community, and we'll figure out a way to make money on the side. You maybe mm. with freemiums or whatever, you know, mm. you know, like they do hosting and they do you know upgrade themes and stuff. We'll take a piece of the action, but we want the the ecology to be free. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, it's like." Uh, it's like, okay, we'll pay for the, we'll we'll build the Amazon rainforest for free, but hey, you know what? If you want canoes and paddles, you can buy those from us. That makes sense. Yeah, nice analogy. And I think yeah. it's it served the entire community well. I mean, I, I one of the yeah. everyone I speak to on the podcast, one of the main reasons that WordPress becomes their chosen platform very quickly is because of the community of developers and the free resources, particularly the plugins that add functionality to WordPress that are just freely available and well supported by a great community of developers. Yeah, and that, that, that's, the, that's, that's why Apple iPhone was so successful. They had said it's all about the developers, it has nothing to do with us. Mm. Well, a little bit to do with us, but mm. they made it very easy for people to, uh, they, made it, they made it very easy for people to contribute. Mm. Uh, they made it very easy to, for people to contribute, whether we're talking about themes, plugins, or you want to, you have something important to say to the world. You know, they made it very, because I think, I think that's a great, uh, when, we, when we're talking about open source software, it's as channeling the need for contribution, which is a you know, very, very, very important drive. Mm. I, I, think, uh, I, think, I think you have to get older to realize that. I think, I think when you're younger, you're just trying to like, get what you can, get laid, Get drunk, <laughs> you know. Fight for scarce resources among your, your your fellow twenty somethings. But I think, you know, when you're older and you've done your thing, you know, you, you want to give back, and, and I, I think you become more aware of that. But I, but I don't think you have to be. I don't think you have to be old like me to want to contribute. But I think it's you're you're more aware of the need, the human how strong the human drive really is. Absolutely, absolutely. What? How do you describe what you do in one sentence <clears throat> when you meet someone for the first time? And they say, Hugh, what do you do? How do you, how do you, how do you, what's your elevator pitch, so to speak? Well, the glib answer is, is, you know, we make motivational art for smart people. That's the, uh, that's the, that's what I say to somebody at a cocktail party. Sure. Who I'm not trying to, if, if they're kind of in the same business I am, I say, well, you know, we, we, uh, we create art that's designed to transform businesses by, 
you know, from disrupting behaviors, which, you know, we're kind of, I guess you could say pioneers in this. But we believe that, you know, the right message, and the right piece of art in the right location, the right office can actually make massive change. Mm. Uh, and because art kind of expresses, it kind of bundles together our prime drivers and our prime, you know, what, what, what there is to love, what there is to fear, what there is to hate, what's important, what's trivial, what's, you know, what's beautiful, what's repellent. It, it, it's kind of like art is a great editor of human experience. Mm. And you, and you kind of, it's also a great way of expressing empathy. I mean, you look at an old Van Gogh painting. You look at the guy, the Van Gogh painting of the, the old, you know, the old lady looking kind of sad. You can, or a Rembrandt actually better. He's nobody captures everything better than Rembrandt. You look at the old sad woman wearing a very expensive dress. You feel like, wow, yeah, she's got everything. She's rich and all that, but she's tired. And I have everything. So sometimes I have everything, and sometimes I'm tired. And you just kind of connect with that. Mm. And I, I think you need a lot of empathy in business because either not just with your customers, but also with your coworkers, with your suppliers, with, you know, uh, what does it mean to be alive? You know, and you can ask that, you know, here we are in an office. What does that mean? What does it mean to be alive? And why do we, what, you know, we got 1200 people in this office. Why the hell do we all get up, up in the morning? And come to work and do this thing. When we, it'd just be easier just to kill ourselves. Yeah. <clears throat> or go work. Or go work at McDonald's. Or go be bartenders. You know. Go backpacking around Europe. Why are we here? <laughs> you know, selling whatever. You know. You know whatever we're selling. Plastic pens or. You know bottles of aspirin or you know whatever it is we're, we make or. Legal services. You know yeah. whatever. And what's interesting to me, I'm not really a, I don't consider myself really an entrepreneur or a businessman. I just think I'm a cartoonist. But what's interesting to business about me is human motivation. Why, why, do, we, why do we do this shit? You know? It can't just be because of money because we all know how much money doesn't buy you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We all know. We all, anyone had, anyone, anyone's ever had any kind of money at all knows what it cannot buy. And the list is quite fast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. It's interesting. It's interesting to me that as an artist, you've chosen, you say that you're not an entrepreneur, but, and I don't know, I could be wrong about this, but you've chosen to make, you've chosen to make art that, that doesn't hang in a gallery at an exhibition, hoping people will come in and buy it, but you've chosen to make art for businesses. So it's a slightly different, well, it's a very different business model to a lot of artists or, or illustrators or painters or sculptors would take. Was that a conscious decision because you thought, well, this is probably going to be more sustainable than hanging my stuff in a gallery hoping someone will buy it? Well, yes. I mean, of course it is because I don't know. If you, we, I live in Miami. We have, the, we have big art fairs here every year. We have Art Basel in Miami, which is one of the biggest art fairs in the world, where we have literally thousands of artists, thousands of galleries, thousands of collectors, all the, all the major galleries, all the major art buyers just fly down here and, and hang on their yachts for a week. It's a complete zoo. And, you know, I, I, go, I look at this art, you know, and, and what you notice, most of the art could be just as easily made in a sweatshop in China as it could be in some Brooklyn studio. It's just, okay, okay, it's pretty. Okay, great. You got a couch? You got a pretty house? Okay, you need a pretty piece to go above your pretty couch and your pretty house and your pretty neighborhood and your pretty city so your pretty wife can say, think pretty thoughts about you. <laughs> that's wonderful. You know, that's all good. Um, you know, but it, to me it was always... Like, okay, I just painted this beautiful thing. Aren't I clever? Who wants to buy it? It's like, I don't know. It, it wasn't very interesting to me. I mean, I mean, what I like, what I like about being an adult is being an adult. I like getting out in the real world and meeting interesting people doing interesting things. And then having something to do myself which interfaces with those interesting things on a meaningful level. Rather than, hey, Mr. Dotcom Millionaire, would you like to buy a pretty thing for your pretty couch? Mm. How about 
how about I draw something that's kind of because I find what you do interesting and I want to create art around that thing which I find interesting that you do. Mm. To me, is 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 relating to people. I did this one piece for a guy called Jeff Clavier, <clears throat> who's a venture capitalist, a very successful one. He has it in his he has it in his uh, pantry in, in, in his office. It's big. It's forty eight by forty eight. It's like two guys talking to each other. And one guy just says, "So what's the fucking business model?" And the other guy goes, "You're the fucking business model, rich boy." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, and to me, that's me making a snarky comment about certain people who try to get money out of VCs, as opposed to me drawing a picture of a pretty flower and going, "Hey, Jeff, you like pretty flowers? I just drew one." Is that I'm, I'm actually interested in the lives of other people mm. and what they try to, you know, guys like you, guys like I don't know, name somebody. You know, uh, I, I like I like to. I don't want to just like be one of those guys who, you know, reads about famous people like the Steve Jobs or the Dalai Lama and just quotes them and then, you know, or Obama, Barack Obama, or, you know, whoever, Francois Mitterrand or whoever, Bob Hawke, whoever. Is he still alive? Bob Hawke? <laughs> he is. Okay. Uh, still playing golf and he's in his late 80s, okay. I think, now. Is he really? Okay. No, what I want to do is like, I meet all these like, and you do too, your job, you meet all these really interesting people. I, I, I like to make art that's around, about their lives. I'm not really interested, I'm not so interested in their, you know, their, when I talk about their life, I'm not really interested in their love lives, I'm not really interested in their children so much. I'm not so much interested in, you know, their fashion sense or whatever. I'm, I'm interested in like the way they get up and make a living every day. Mm. That to me is... And, you know, and the thing is, most artists really aren't interested in how their clients make a living. They just want them to be able to afford their work. Mm. They don't really care. Whereas me, I always find like, wow, you do what for a living? Wow, that's really cool. Mm. I think it's something to do with, you know, I think, I think it has something to do with otherness. So. How, how, did you, how did you find your first clients? Because I imagine that, you know, I imagine that approaching a, a business and selling them on the idea that art can actually help their culture and help their productivity and help their their bottom line, I imagine that's a pretty tough sell. Uh, it took practice. Uh, well, what I, what I, you know, what, what, what I had was it, it, it kind of happened organically. Whereas I had, I had fans inside the businesses mm. and what they do is they, they, you know, they would uh, buy a piece that inspired them or whatever, hopefully, uh, and put in their office. And then people would go, oh, I like that. Where'd you, where'd you get that? Got it. And then um, let's say, and that go on. They, you know, they, and then after like a year or two, they'd be in a meeting and say, oh, we're having this event next Christmas or next Easter or whatever, next summer or whatever. We should do fun stuff. How should we design the poster? And the guy, the guy with the thing is off. Oh, I know somebody. And, the, and, and, uh, So and, and so it became organic, but we, we realized that our art could really motivate people. And, you know, I, we did this one piece I'm very proud of still. I did for Rackspace, which is like a big hosting company here in the States. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's just like a, it just, it was a big drawing. It just said, if you're just here for the paycheck, don't expect to last very long. <laughs> and of course, the people who were just there for the paycheck hated that cartoon and they went and told their bosses. But the bosses said, oh, you're one of those people, are you? <laughs> so we noticed that there was certain kind of there was certain kind of alignment. We, you could kind of really uh, demarcate alignment within the companies, and that's a big part of leadership is alignment. Mm. And that was a very useful tool. And so we just became more focused on that. Uh, the thing, the thing, the thing, the great thing about art is it says what everybody thinks but cannot say mm. through normal. See, if a boss said, walks into, you know, if a boss walks in the office and says, you're just here for the paycheck, don't expect very long, don't expect to last very long, frankly, he sounds like an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> or he might be construed to sound like an asshole, but it's just a cartoon, it doesn't matter, it's just a cartoon. You can say, well, oh, well, it's just a cartoon, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, 
and that's 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 a great charm. That's great. That, that's a great thing about cartoons. That's a great power is that they're they're just cartoons. They don't matter. You know, I, I get people on Twitter, you know, haters on Twitter all the time saying, you know, Q, I did not like that cartoon. I said, well, I already drew it and you already read it, so it doesn't matter. Mm. It's not like, excuse me for wasting five seconds of your life, unlike other people here on Twitter. You know, it's like, you know, it's just, it's, so it's very, it's a very, uh, it's a very, I think it's a very powerful medium just because it's a very friendly medium and very trustworthy medium. You know, if, if, uh, I think I think I think I think cartoons lie less in photography, lie lie a lot less in video or, or cameras do. I think uh, it's not the job of a cartoon to flatter it, or the, it's you know. Interesting. I, I want to explore this kind of the journey of when when you said before about when you're in your twenties you were finding your voice as an artist, and when you're in your thirties you kind of had established what that voice was, and you were really comfortable with yourself as an artist, and you've gone you, you know you've got some amazing clients in your portfolio that have that you've that you've that have commissioned you to provide produce art for them including Audi, GoDaddy, HubSpot, Goldman Sachs, Intel, Microsoft. Microsoft, uh, yeah. Rackspace, yeah, Seth yeah. Godin, um, Oh yeah. You know, yeah. Volkswagen, uh, the list goes on. Uh, Zappos, South by Southwest. And I'm reminded of this article uh, that Ira Glass wrote uh, from This American Life about when you know when artists start out most artists, when they start out, are terrible at what they're doing and they have to just get through that period of hating their own work long enough yeah. to actually love their own work and you basically have to produce a lot of shit to get good at what you do, right? At what, like, first of all, how did you keep going when you were hungry and when, when you weren't successful? How did you just keep going? And at what point did you know that you'd reached the tipping point and that, and that these big clients started coming up? Oh, well... I mean, at the very beginning, you know, I had a day job, so it didn't really matter, you know. Because of cartooning, you know, you could draw a cartoon too much. It was like oil painting where you have to, like, you know, save up $200,000 to go to art college and, you know, you know, leave your wife, you know, whatever. Get divorced, you know, alienate all your friends. No, it's just like, it's just like you can do one while you're waiting for a bus, so it's not, it's not very invasive art form. Uh, the first one was the first thing is I had very low overheads and that's all you know I, and I believe in what I was doing and I think I, I think that's true with every every small business is is, is you got lower overheads you believe what you're doing then it's, then it's actually quite easy to last you know three or four summers you know I think it's when you say, "Oh, I must start from the top." I know I'll, I'll rent a loft in Soho, and <laughs> cheap at eighty thousand a month. You know, because clients expect to see class; they want to see their. You know, I think, I think, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I had, I, I just, I, we just kept our overheads low. You know, uh, I wasn't married then, so that was easier. Uh, uh, there's no magic to it. I think. I, I think. I think if you uh, if you believe if you can keep your overheads low, uh, and you believe what you do, you you, sh you should be able to weather most of what life throws at you. My my dad used to call it that, and he's he's no longer with us, but uh, he used to say, "Frugality is freedom," hmm. and I always believe in that. So. Yeah, that's a great that's a great quote. I'm gonna use yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Frugality is freedom. And, you know, and I always, thought, I always feel like, uh, I mean, I don't know where, you, I don't know which part of Australia you live in, right? But I've lived in London, I've lived in LA, I've lived in New York, I've lived in Chicago, I live in all these big cities over, over the years. Oh, cut! I gotta just take my phone. Sure thing, man. Hola. Hi. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still on the podcast. All right. Okay, go ahead. Right, bye. Hi, are we there? Yep, we sure are. Okay. Um, yeah, and you know, I don't know if you, I don't know if you live in a big city or not. I live in Melbourne. Yep. Okay, so I guess that's pretty big. And you see a lot of guys who who 
who have nice furniture and have nice suits and have nice stuff, but they're broke mm. because they, they spent all their time keeping up the Joneses. They have nothing left. Mm. Uh, and that's very, and that's not, you know, you can have a, it's a pretty stressful way to live. Absolutely. I, I used to be in advertising, but, but you know, and that, there are a lot of people like that. You're in fact encouraged to be that way. Yeah. It's, it's, a, uh, it's cultural in that industry, isn't it? Yeah. And, 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 and I'm afraid, I regret to say, a lot of people just end up burnt out. Mm. And, uh, yeah. And, and I always tried to, I always kind of rebelled against that. So, so frugality, frugality is very, luckily I've married a frugal person too. So, uh, I mean, we're not broke or anything, but we're frugal. So yeah. We just, you know, we just like, we, we try to live like we're broke as often as we can. Yeah. It's great advice. And it's funny, uh, when I, interview last week I think with Curtis McHale on the podcast and we spoke a lot about personal finance and getting out of debt and uh, and how that actually just frees you up in your life and the decisions that you make because you're not kind of handcuffed to this lifestyle that you think you're supposed to have but you can't afford so I actually think it's really good advice yeah it's and it's, it's yeah it's uh yeah and you're also yeah it's yeah it's but I suppose some people feel they have to, they have to have the Swiss watch or else they haven't arrived, yeah, <laughs> you know? And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, some people, some people just, you know, my, my grandfather would like say sarcastically, he's Scottish. He'd say, Hey, you only need two things to be happy. You need a hardwooden chair and a Bible, <laughs> you know? And that's like, gee, grandpa. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, that's really great, Grandpa. Where can I get some of that, you know? But, you yeah. know, but uh, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of happiness, you know, is, is having, is aligning, aligning with your own temperament. I mean, I'm, yeah. me and my wife are pretty good at being frugal, but it make other people miserable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like my wife likes to cut out coupons from the newspaper, <laughs> Even though you know she doesn't need to, we can we can afford everything in the newspaper. We can afford everything in the supermarket pretty easily, but she just loves doing it. So yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, one of, one of the reasons to get married means something like that. So okay, let's let's focus. Here. Great advice. All right, we should do the elevation round. Let's do our lightning round. A series of quick questions about um, being a freelancer, um, which you know a lot about. Um, so for those that don't know, WP Elevation is a business accelerator program for WordPress freelancers. I'm going to ask Hugh a series of quick questions and uh, hopefully he'll give us some quick fire answers off the top of his head. What's the number one thing any freelancer needs to know? What's the number one? Oh boy. Uh, what's, oh boy. What's the number one thing a freelancer needs to know? I think when to say no. Yeah, yeah. great advice. <laughs> yeah. That's something, that's something we talk a lot about here. Uh, what's the best thing you've ever done to find new customers? Oh boy, what's the best thing? Oh boy, I, I think I think it turned out to be very helpful in retrospect. Because I I started I started a newsletter when email was going out of fashion. Uh, also, also the best thing to the best thing I think is to find the customers your competition doesn't want. I think that's the best thing you can do. Mm. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a, a Canadian called Scott Stratton who I know. We're friendly. He's not a great friend. He's not a close friend, but we're friendly and we know each other's work. And he's a, uh, a new, you know, marketing 2.0 kind of guy. He makes all his money public speaking. He just turns up and gets the house clapping. That's his job. Yeah, he's the unmarketing guy. Is that right? Yeah, unmarketing guy. Yeah, right, and he's right. a lot, a lot of fun. Really fun guy. Really engaging. He's actually much, you know, he's actually he's actually better in real life than he is online, which is rare for a lot of these people. <laughs> <laughs> Present company excluded, of course. I'm sure you're well, better in real life. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but he's one of those guys who actually is a lot of lot more, you know. And he said, you know. He says he never goes to conferences where there's like a lot of superstars, you know, they're like you know, rock stars. He goes, why should I just get up and be one more rock star in a chain of rock stars where, you know, I can go to like the, uh, you know, the Canadian Mushroom Growers Association and be king for a day. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's quite happy kind of like going after the gigs that nobody else wants. Yeah, that's great. 
And I think, I think, I think that's where, I think that's where Gaping Void was, was successful was we were interested in, we weren't interested in clients who had lots of money the way most artists are. We were interested in clients who have real problems. Mm. Nice. That we, and, uh, and so we, we were going, we, we didn't want the same customers, the average knucklehead in a gallery once. We didn't want like, you know, cause most, most, you know, spend, there's a reason why when you kind of spend a lot of time around galleries, you start feeling crack, you know, start feeling cranky. <laughs> kind of dirty somehow you know, it's, it's not it's, just me it's not just me no, no, it's, no it's, and no we just we just uh i think free, yeah I think, I think being a freelancer you have to find a niche you know like 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 scott did he said i'm going to go to all the, the most boring conferences or you know boring conferences in the country and just knock them dead yeah as opposed to wait to be invited to the ted yeah you know, so that's what he, so yeah, find a niche, I think. Find, find a real niche nobody else thought about. How do you stop competing on price? You stop competing on price. Nice answer. Uh, <laughs> uh, Great well, answer. I think, well, what, the way we did it, well, one, we had a very unique offering, so we didn't have to, okay? If you're competing on price, then that means they don't really care about you. Mm. Now I think you can be real. I think you can be reasonable about price. Being reasonable about price and being competing on price aren't the same thing. If that makes any sense? Yeah. Yep. So, and you find that most most talented people, their main thing that pisses them off is when they think they're not being paid fairly. Mm. Most really talented people don't care if they're overpaid or underpaid. Oh, they, they care if they're underpaid. But most 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 talented people aspire to be paid fairly. Mm. And there's scientific research about that. It's not like, oh, I got to be a millionaire. I'm going to be miserable. No, I want to be paid when I'm worth. Mm. And they have like a, a band. If they have this idea of the uh, a fair price. And uh, they'll go between 10% under and 10% over. And that's the kind of band they aim for. Mm. They're not trying to get, they're not trying to be paid double. They're not, and they're certainly not going to be paid less than that. But that's the band. Uh, I think what we did was... Uh, Well, one, we don't really we don't really discuss price within. I mean, you know, I mean, if somebody if somebody has if somebody has something interesting going on, say, well, look, we're just a small company, but you know, something interesting, we can we can work with that. We can't work with that. We can't work with that every day. Sure. Uh, like we did a commission for we did a commission for Majid uh, Nawaz, the great. Kind of Muslim activist in England. He's a really interesting guy. He's given TED talks. He's given TED talks and everything. And you know, he has a small kind of charitable foundation. So we weren't going to charge him, you know, corporate prices. You know. Sure. But but now you know, he's a really interesting guy to know because he's just a wonderful, interesting guy. And, and so, I think. Uh, I think if you're competing on price, it means you haven't differentiated your offering enough. Great answer. The, 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 thing, the thing about Gaping Void is like, when people come to Gaping Void, if they don't want an illustrator, they want me, or they want us, or they whatever, you know, us. They want the team, you know, they want us. It's not like, you know, I have to get in line with 12 other illustrators to submit. Yeah. I go, no, you, 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 by the time you come, by the time you're, Give us a phone call. You want us, and I think that's uh, you know I got a friend in England who's a tailor, a really good tailor. I mean, he makes suits for really famous people and everything. He's one of the best in the world. And uh, this guy writes an email to him saying, "Well, I want to buy my first five thousand dollars suit. I've narrowed my choices down to you and Huntsman. Which one? Which one do you recommend?" Or why should I? Or why should I choose you over Huntsman? He went, dude. You should Huntsman or Huntsman rocks. You should totally get them. Ask, ask for Gary there. He'll sort you out. Tell him Thomas sent you. You'll be you'll be looked after. So what do you think happened? Yeah. <laughs> the guy came back. Please, no, I don't want Huntsman. I want you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's gold, isn't it? You have to you have to own what you do. Any tips on writing better proposals? 
Do you write proposals? Uh, I need to write proposals. Um, you probably should ask Jason, my, my partner. He, he writes much more the, than I do. I think, I think it's just being very clear about what, what do you actually want. I mean, why, why are they asking you to do this thing? It's not just because you need money. You know, it's like, you know, what's, what's actually going to... Uh, I, th I think the clearer you idea you have of what you want, the easier it is to write proposals. I, 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 think, I think that's my advice. Clarity. Clarity. Do you have a, a favourite tool for uh, managing your clients? Do you use like a, a, a particular piece of software for managing your client relationships? Uh, Gmail and Basecamp, I think. Nice. Yeah. Uh, um, but we, but you know, we, we use different. The whole team uses different tools. But you know, again, you know, everyone has their own sweet spots. What's the best way to keep a project on track in terms of managing the client's expectations with delivery dates and all that kind of stuff? Oh boy, practice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I, well, obviously being vigilant. Vigilant is good. But also understanding what actually can go wrong. You know, saying, well, so, so, so we try to, when, when we try to, when we, when we set deadlines, we try to be realistic. Like, like let's say a two-week, a two-week project. Uh, okay, that's ten working days. Why well, I, I know myself that of those ten days, two of those days are, are going to be bad days. Like either, you know, the baby's going to be up all night, or I'm going to break my foot or something, or I'm, or my wife's going to have the flu, or. Or another client's going to be unhappy about something. We're going to have to go put put out a fire or whatever, you know. Or you know, the unforeseen. So, I guess I guess in England and not even in America, we call it leave yourself a wiggle room. Uh huh. So, uh, I you know I think under pro under promising over delivering is a great maxim. It's hard to. Uh, also, I think also I think being constant communication with clients. You know, my my mother was a very successful consultant. In her day, she used to say, she used to have have it all posted, you know, have you, have you hugged your client today? Because uh -huh. having, you know, hugging your client every day, you know, snuggling, you know, giving them a snuggle every day, it, it gives you a lot more wiggle room. Yeah. You, know? yeah, that's... you, gotta, you, gotta, you gotta remember, neither you or your client are robots. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. You know? <laughs> You're just dropping quotes here I can use. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> All the time, man. Yeah. It's just yeah. a quote fest with Hugh McLeod. Yeah. Uh, um, do you get referrals from existing customers? Like, and do you like actively elicit referrals? Well, we don't really. Uh, yeah, I suppose. I mean, you know, the thing about you go into somebody's office, you see down the wall. Uh -huh. Where'd you get that? Yeah. So do good work. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a print on a wall. The thing about a print on a, or whether a print on a wall is people see it, they like it. But where'd you get that? Yeah, and that's and the thing is, the thing about the thing about a piece of art on a wall is there every day. Yeah, people see it every day. So I I, I, I love I love art for that reason. Mm. It's evergreen. So it's, it's evergreen, isn't it? Yeah, it's just, it's just like a. And if, you know, if you see, if you have a piece, you know, it's like. Yeah, and I also also think of art's great. It is filter. People tell me, well, you know, I have this piece of art, whatever piece of art it is, on my wall. If somebody walks in, if they hate that piece of art, I know I don't want them as clients. Or, yeah. But they love the piece of art. I go, yeah, cool. It's a bit like uh, when you're a kid. You know, do you like the Rolling Stones? No, I like the Beatles. What? You like the Beatles? You're not my friend. Yeah. Or, Whatever band. Yeah, totally. It totally was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, man. Absolutely. Yeah. Or Midnight Oil in, in Excess or whatever. Yeah, you've, you've done your research. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. Or Split Ends, man. Yes! Now Split you're ends. talking. Yeah, Crowded House. Now you're talking. Yeah, you, you could kind of try to think of the great Australian bands. I think Split, well, they're New Zealand. But yeah. Split Ends. In Excess, awesome. probably, you know, Men at Work and In Excess, probably two of our biggest uh, exports. But yeah. Neil Finn from Split Ends, my favorite songwriter of all time, uh, second to John Lennon. Hey, what's the number one thing you can do to differentiate yourself as a freelancer? So, 
what was the number one thing? Uh, I think I think it's to go after a niche that nobody else has thought of. I, th yeah. I think I think too many people are trying to sell the same stuff as fifty other people. Or I other totally people. agree. That is absolutely spot. And, you know, it's like I had a, another friend of mine, a friend of my dad's. He went to Harvard Business School. You know, he, and he, he got it. So he did. He got his MBA. He was also an accountant, right? He said, "Oh boy, I need. I, I need." A, and this was like in the eighties. This was a long time ago. He said, well, okay, I, I file taxes for people making, you know, whatever, middle-class incomes. He said, well, me and 58,000 million other accountants. That's right. And so what he did, he said, okay, I'm just going to I'm just gonna file income taxes for airliners. Oh, and I'm just going to file income taxes for flight attendants. And the thing, the thing about flight attendants is, A, you know, they all know each other. Be they all, they all spend their time in the galley, all through the flat, gossiping. Yeah. So every you know every every year around tax time, one of them is stressing out about taxes. Oh, but I know this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and they and they all fly different crews, and so they spread. And so That's great. he made a for, he made a fortune just because he he said, okay, I'm just I'm just going. He he just chose a niche nobody else had thought of. He specialized. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and it wasn't, it wasn't particularly original niche, but it's just like okay, I'm going after these people. Yeah. Why? I don't know. I like, I like airline stewardess. I have no idea why. Fantastic. I love it. Uh, thanks for getting us through the elevation round. All right, just before we wrap up, um, the competition, I'm giving away a copy of Hugh's book, uh, which is called Ignore Everybody and 37 Other Ways to Be Creative. I think that's what it's called. Is that right? Uh, yep, it is. Ignore Everybody and 39 Other Keys to Creativity. In order to enter the competition, Hugh wants to know, what is the hardest thing about your chosen profession? Now, we're all in the WordPress freelance space, uh, so leave a comment underneath this video at wpelevation.com slash Hugh uh, and tell us what is the number one, the hardest thing about your chosen profession, and I'll get Hugh to swing by in a couple of weeks and award the prize. Hey, Hugh, thank you so much for spending almost an hour with us here on the Welcome. podcast, man. Yeah, I really fun. appreciate your time. Um, that was fun. Finally, who would you like me to try and interview on this podcast and why? Uh, let's see. Oh my goodness. I would like you to interview Ben Chestnut. Right. Of CEO of, of MailChimp. Oh yes, right. Excellent. Cause I think he's one of my he's one of my favorite entrepreneurs. Just very low key, just super successful, doing something super useful that no one else was thinking about at the time, but he just did it anyways. Brilliant. And uh he he's he's not like you know, he his company is as successful as pretty much any other startup in the world, mm. with, with the exception of Google and Facebook. But he just he's just such a gentleman, mm. and just just has so much fun designing. And I, I'm also a big advocate of of email marketing. Mm. So, uh, and he just does it better than anybody else. And he's just such a lovely, interesting guy, and down to earth. So, Great. You, well, you, you Australians don't like him. But. Thank you very much for the suggestion. Ben Chestnut, I'm coming to get you, courtesy of Hugh McLeod, so keep your eyes on your inbox. I'll get you on the podcast. Thank you once again, Hugh, for spending some time with us on the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to seeing uh, how Gaping Void evolves over time. And, uh, Thank you. And, uh, yeah, keep in touch. Righty-ho. Cheerio. Thank you. Ciao. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the WP Elevation podcast as much as I did episode 73. It's hard to believe we've come so far in the last... 73 weeks. Uh, get on over to wpelevation.com slash humacloud, H-U-G-H-M-A-C-L-E-O-D for all of the information and links in the show notes for this particular episode. And how sweet are our new show notes? Courtesy of Philip, the show notes guy, who's now writing all of our show notes for us. Very detailed, huh? Very nice indeed. Um, this episode is sponsored by Video User Manuals, which I've already spoken about. It is simply the fastest and the quickest and the best way to teach your clients how to use WordPress. If you don't know what it is, it's a plugin that puts a bunch of videos in your client's WordPress dashboard. Check it out at videousermanuals.com. Subscribe to the podcast at wpelevation.com slash subscribe so that uh, you never miss another episode. We'll simply send you an email every Thursday morning with a link to the podcast. You can also check us out on iTunes 
iTunes, uh, subscribe on iTunes so that it comes straight into your uh, podcatcher here on your iPhone or your Android phone if you're that way inclined. And give us a rating and a review on iTunes, please. Tell us what you think about the show. It really does help us come up in the search results, which helps us get our message out and help more WordPress consultants. Um, I think that's about all. Oh, leave a comment underneath this video, of course, to enter the competition. Tell Hugh McLeod the hardest thing about your chosen profession. What is the number one hardest thing about being a WordPress consultant? And Hugh will swing by in a couple of weeks and award the prize, uh, which I'm giving away, a copy of his book, of course. Who's on next week? Um, Guy Kawasaki. Yeah. No worries, I'll just do a quick flash to white there. Next week, I am super, super excited to announce that our guest on the WP Elevation podcast is none other than Guy Kawasaki. That's right, ex-chief evangelist at Apple and now chief evangelist at Canva, uh, which is a drag and drop design tool you can use to create all sorts of designs, podcast artwork, Facebook ads, you name it. I recently discovered that Canva are a Sydney company. So check out Canva at canva.com or you can just Google canva. And next week we're gonna be interviewing Guy Kawasaki. I'm really looking forward to that. I hope you are too. Until then, I'm Troy Dean, go Elevate.